Everyone knows that email is an essential part of any logistics operation. But what if some of those emails could be handled by technology instead of by your team? What if you could work faster and spend more time on the things that really matter, like growing relationships so you can grow your business? Introducing Levity AI, the tool that connects to your inbox, extracts key information, and pushes it straight to your TMS for you. Rate requests, new shipment entry, and tracking updates can all be automated. So get serious about saving time and winning more business. You can do it with Levity. Are you a 3PL spending more time and money than you'd like recruiting and onboarding logistics roles? Then it's time to check out Rapido Solutions Group, the leaders in nearshore logistics staffing. Located right next door in Mexico, they have access to the freight talent you need. From carrier sales to tracking and tracing and everything in between, they can do the heavy lifting for you. So if you're ready to get your time back and want to move fast, check out Rapido Solutions Group. Visit GoRapido.com to get started today. Hello and welcome to the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics, the FreightWaves podcast highlighting founders doing it the way that doesn't get a lot of attention. We're here to change that and grow the small business community in our industry by sharing their stories and inspiring others to take the leap. I'm your host, Nate Schutz. Let's build something together from the ground up. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. It is a special and monumental episode in the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics for two main reasons. The first reason is that this is the last episode. We've not announced it yet publicly, but it feels like as we wrap up 2022 and have shared now nearly 40 founder stories, the stories that we wanted to highlight and the story lines that we felt were most impactful for others to hear, we've covered a lot of them. We obviously can't tell every single founder journey, but I feel like we've covered a a large cross-section of people and types of businesses ages, you know, demographics, we've covered a lot of ground. And to keep telling that story, I didn't want it to become stale. And so we're going to wrap this up on a high note after completing 40 episodes, which seems ridiculous to me that we even made it that far. But that's the first big announcement. The second one is today's episode is unique in that it's kind of meta. We get to talk to the founder of Freight Waves, Craig Fuller, who's the founder and CEO of a handful of businesses. He's now also the CEO of Flying Magazine. And he comes from a long line of entrepreneurs in his own family. But he's also the reason that this podcast started in the first place with a single tweet about a year ago in November of last year. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. I don't know exactly where we're going to go, but we're going to go deep like we typically do. So without any further ado, want to introduce founder and CEO of FreightWaves, Craig Fuller. Craig, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing great, Nate. Great to be here. Congratulations on the journey. It's uh, fun to you know, start out when you start to build something and see where it evolves. You know, I think it's uh, been a great sort of highlight of, of entrepreneurship that's in logistics. So let me just go right at it then. Where did the idea for this podcast or even you know, highlighting bootstrap founders come from? You know, there's a lot, you and I talked about it on Twitter. It's amazing how, you know, Twitter is interesting of late where Elon Musk sort of made it 
you know, it's very polarizing people that are in Twitter. It's funny because my Twitter feed is blown up with people like declaring Twitter dead inside of Twitter. So it's sort of interesting. But if you sort of look at the power of Twitter, it's bringing together amazing amount of content with thought leaders across the whole spectrum. And it, it is a great networking tool. And sort of, I think every founder and frankly, anybody that's involved in any kind of networking, frankly, most people should have some good networking, should be active on Twitter as a personal opinion. And that's how this came about was really a lot of conversation about the fact that there's been a lot of attention paid to venture-backed companies that have entered the logistics and supply chain space of recent, uh, but they're not born of the industry. And this is a recent development where you have outside investors. And you and I started talking about a lot of the sort of lack of coverage and others have talked about the lack of coverage as it relates to just traditional founders getting into the industry and not raising venture capital. And that's really where sort of this all came about. So what about the bootstrapping movement appeals to you as someone who has led and started, you know, multiple companies? You know, at the end of the day, you know, I had built businesses that have been funded or called self-funded or bootstrapped. I've benefited from, you know, venture capital, you know, Freightways is a VC-backed company. I think it all goes back to however you finance a business is sort of determines how you build it and how you scale it. But what drives a founder to do something is pretty universal, whether it's outside capital or uh, sort of a belief in an idea that they go out and do it. I find that bootstrapping often is sort of accidental, at least my own sort of observations, is that oftentimes when somebody's bootstrapping a business, they don't really know where it's going to end up. And there's something magical about that. And I think that should be celebrated. You know, we do a lot of celebration of venture capital-backed companies. They have the opportunity to raise capital and announce it. I don't think there's enough coverage of sort of the bootstrapping environment. And it's a really important part of it. You know, only something like 4% of all businesses, startups or have any side of outside capital. 96% of it is bootstrap. And that's where the majority, even in logistics, or the majority of businesses, I mean, Frankly, my father bootstrapped his business and went out and started, you know, what's now a very large trucking company. And that was bootstrapped. There was no, that was something that he went out and did. And there was no venture capital, private equity investing in trucking in those days. I think all of that should be celebrated. It's just a powerful way to start a business. And I think, you know, the challenge of raising VC is that you have to have a really big idea that's effectively going to boil the ocean. Whereas in bootstrapping, you can run it at your own pace. And oftentimes those businesses, you know, create cash flow, provide a great quality of life. I mean, it's interesting because I know a lot of VC backed founders that I consider, you know, that I look up to, consider mentors of my own. I also consider some as my peers. And it's interesting for the vast majority of those founders that started a company that is venture backed is they tend to be very paper rich, the ones that have really reached successful, but very illiquid. Whereas a bootstrap business effectively is all about liquidity business can only be as successful as you generate cash flow. And I think that's important. So tell me about your dad and your family. So my father started U.S. Express in 1985. It's now one of the largest truckload carriers in the United States. You know, my grandfather was sort of a pioneer long-haul trucking. My grandfather sold his business to somebody that ended up embezzling a bunch of the money. And my dad was an officer and was like, wait, I didn't sign up for this. My father actually ended up turning state's evidence and the guy the guy who bought the business ended up serving prison time for embezzling all the cash out of the trucking business. But my father effectively bootstrapped his trucking business. I think most asset-based truckload carriers of that story, it's a bootstrap business. 
my father certainly had sort of the pedigree from my grandfather and learned the business and the ropes so how to run a trucking company back from his own dad. But like many truckload carriers, if not most, they're typically are bootstrap businesses or family businesses. And that's sort of the story. The backstory of that is my dad started it. He didn't inherit it. My grandfather sold the business. And like I said, the guy ended up embezzling a bunch of money. So I got to see, I was six years old when my dad started US Express. And I got to see sort of the, you know, I was old enough to sort of understand that my father had started something. My mom was panicked and was really upset. My dad had left this sort of cush job of a salary and had gone out, even though the company was sort of floundering, going out of business as the dude was embezzling money. It was interesting to see how my mom was really stressed out because, you know, we had three boys in our family and, you know, anybody who's a father or a mother, you sort of worry about those things. So my mom was really stressed. I just remember it was a big issue in my family. I didn't think I comprehended why or why it would be a big issue. I just remember there was a lot of sort of internal drama uh, related to that. And so I got to see sort of a small business in a trailer with, you know, 50 trucks, which is a lot. You bank financed it, but my father was able to do that. And then sort of where it has scaled to today. So do you feel like entrepreneurship is just the water that you've been swimming in your whole life? Or did you discover that about yourself at a certain point that you wanted to build companies and you had to, I guess, was the leap shorter for you? I had no doubt that I would be an entrepreneur or a founder or a CEO. Like that was just, it was sort of felt like I was destined to do that. I mean, part of it is I analyzed my dad. One of the sort of common themes of entrepreneurship is that oftentimes an entrepreneur has someone in their family. They grew up in an entrepreneurial family because they understand the risks that they're taking. But they also, probably more importantly, have seen that it can work. And I think a lot of what stops most would-be entrepreneurs is just a lot of self-doubt. And frankly, a lot of people around them tell them not to go do it. And I think you have to have a framework. You have to have coaches and mentors that are going to encourage you along the way. And so for me, I looked at my dad. I was, again, old enough to understand that he started the business. And I remembered it, even though I was quite young. And anytime that you have a, you know, your brain isn't really fully developed. So your memories are sort of very, you know, suspect, if you will. As a young boy, I just remember that journey for my dad. And, you know, it was a small business and then it became a big business. And I sort of lived through that through most of my formative years. And so I saw that it could be possible. And I dreamed of that for myself. Again, sort of going back to the fact that I idolized my own dad meant that I wanted to be him in many ways. And I guess part of me thought that I would take over his business as I sort of came of age. That didn't happen for various reasons. And so I always knew that I wanted something of my own. And here we are. Now, the journey wasn't straight up, you know, as I like to say, a hockey stick and all of a sudden you sort of do it. You know, there's a lot of jagged edges along the way. I started businesses that failed. I started businesses that struggled. It wasn't just instant success for me. You know, I basically ended up broke. I wouldn't say destitute because that would be an exaggeration. But, you know, my father fired me and cut me off of everything. Probably rewrote all the will for all I know. You know, it's sort of interesting when you had this backdrop of a successful family and you have, you know, what you view as sort of always that cushion to go out and take risks. All of a sudden, for me, that was gone. Like I truly didn't have that cushion to sort of do it. But I had enough money saved up and I had really good credit with sort of my foundational sort of capital because I had really good credit. And at one point, I made a lot of money, but I had burned through all that. So a combination of reckless day trading of trucking stocks, believe it or not, and just didn't have the kind of income that I had at one point. So I didn't have a lot of money. I had 
you know, I had two kids trying to provide for them, you know, child support and, you know, all this stuff and never really made good cash money. It was always sort of equity until my dad fired me and all that went away. And so I, I was left with good credit, sort of the only thing I had and enough cash to sort of put my kids into school. And I tried day trading to sort of make up for what I had thought that I could do this and realized I couldn't day trade. So I remember I decided I had just met my now wife and there was a moment in time where I realized the life that I was leading. And I was an employee and I was making decent money, but it wasn't like, I just felt like I was not going anywhere in my life. Like I had ran companies. I was a salesperson. That's, that's a great job for many people. But for me, I wanted something more. I think the challenge for a founder or anybody who's ever been successful at anything in their life is whenever you reach a certain plane and you get knocked down a couple of notches, it's impossible for you to sit there and just accept that, I think, for most people. And I think there's sort of two types of people. One will just give up and sort of accept that as a life. And the others will sort of evaluate it and sort of get back up and realize that the current life they're leading doesn't achieve the goals they have for themselves. So my dad had fired me. I'd been cut off. And I had this job that I was really not great at. I just hated the job. I actually wasn't bad at it. just hated it. And when you hate something, you become bad at it. And I absolutely decided that wasn't the life I wanted to live. And so I decided I was going to go start what's now Freight Waves. It was uh, sort of my own journey. But I had failed enough to know what failure felt like. It's a situation where once you sort of let my dad down, which was everything in my life, and I felt like I let my family down. And it was somewhat humiliating to go through a, you know, it wasn't a big business, but it was big in Chattanooga. And I felt like it was sort of humiliated. Getting fired by your own dad is sort of, it's humiliating in a small town where you have a high profile family. So for me, I had to take time to sort of work through that. Is that where the inner struggle that you're talking about is the difference between long-term vision and delusion seems very blurred. It always is, right? I think there's a point for me, and I suspect this is for a lot of founders. You reach the point where you just don't care. Because like, what if you fail? What if you go and start something that doesn't work out? I mean, I could get a job, employable, I can sell, like a lot of things I can do. Like I knew that I wasn't completely useless. Like I could find a job, but the job that I had, I hated. It's a sales job. Making decent, we call it decent money, but I didn't have to work very hard and I wasn't learning, I wasn't growing. And for me, that was just sort of like, okay, I'm going to try this. And it was sort of like this calling. And so I went out and ran up a Bank of America credit card. With Z- I got a zero APR credit line for six months and it had a $50,000 credit limit. And I used that for initial funding. That was sort of our initial funding. And I told my wife I was going to do it. We weren't married at that point. And she sort of said, please don't. We had been dating long enough, four or five months into this, that we wanted to be together. And she was going to leave New York City. And she had a really good job up in the city. She had to, at this point, Texas is where I was living at the time. And she was like, wait, you're going to be unemployed and I'm going to be unemployed. And she had never grown up in an entrepreneurial family. Her parents have been very successful, but not entrepreneurs. And I think there's a difference in sort of that reality for her. And quite risk averse. Her family just sort of paid off their house and just sort of, they don't take big risks. And for her, that just isn't her style. And so for me to take big risks was sort of unusual. And she never knew me as a founder. She knew me when I was a day trader, which is a risk deal. But I think she thought it was a hobby that when I sort of ran through all the money that I would end up doing something else. And she really hated every bit of it. But I think sort of that honeymoon phase of a new relationship, you sort of let it be until I started losing whatever money I had left. And so realized that maybe this was a healthier habit to actually go do something, build something versus 
effectively gambling as you day trade. Yeah, that's kind of where it's at. I think it is a bit of delusion, but it's also a bit of, I just don't care. Like, what if I fell? And I think you get to a point, sort of rock bottom is probably an exaggeration. Someone who's, you know, maybe had bigger issues in their life would be offended by that comment. But I think when you sort of look at the lifeline of founder, I think you realize, I don't like the life I'm in. I don't like the career that I'm in. I'm not inspired. I'm not learning. I'm not growing. And I would give up every bit of my comfort, all the money that I'm making to get some satisfaction and grow and learn. And that was the desire for me. I think I had gone from the stage in my life when I was younger where it was about getting rich and like, I want to be the most richest or the richest person in the world and the most successful person in the world. I think we all tell ourselves that at some point, whether it's we want to be a, you know, a YouTube star, which my kids want to be, or we want to be the biggest athlete in the world. Like whatever your sort of journey is in life, I think if you have any level of ambition, you want to be the biggest and the baddest at that. For me, it was a being an entrepreneur. And I think I gave that up because I had failed so miserably and in my own mind humiliated, I had given all that up. So I didn't try to do that this time around. And I think that's where the mistake I'd made in the past was I wanted to go swing big. This time I didn't want that. I just wanted a business that I could go solve a problem. And that was the drive. One of the interesting things that on this journey that I've been on is being able to hear themes emerge in different types of founders and be able to say them back to another founder or a new audience member or just somebody who reaches out with a question on, hey, I want to start my business and I'm terrified. You know, as we wrap up this podcast, it is fascinating to me to hear you describe the what's the worst that could happen because it calls to mind, I'm just going to give some shout outs now looking back over the last 39 episodes, Ryan Schreiber described the same phenomenon of people overestimating, not the risks, but overestimating the worst case scenario. So what? You lose, call it $100,000. So what? You can pay that back over you know some years time. And then you go out and you get another job. But with the knowledge that you acquired as an entrepreneur, which makes you 10 times more valuable as an employee, especially in a founder-led company. And non-entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or anybody who hasn't taken that leap, to hear that from somebody in your position who's not only had you know success individual businesses, but you've become, you know, you're freight famous. You've become the first and earliest freight celebrity. It's interesting to hear you say that same thing in the, I don't care, which isn't that you don't care. It's just that you don't feel the loss as intensely, perhaps. I think you do care, but just not in the way that most people would understand it. We'll be right back. Have you heard about Bitfreighter and the EDI revolution? Bitfreighter helps companies automate communication with their freight partners through unlimited messaging and quoting. Traditional providers can't say that. The Bitfreighter team is also available 24-7 and responds immediately by phone, email, or yes, even text. Legacy providers can't say that either. So if you want to scale your operations to save time and money, come join the EDI revolution with us. Visit bitfreighter.com to get started today. You know, for me, it was the public humiliation. This was, again, chatting a small town, big family in, in the city. But it was sort of public humiliating. It humiliated my network of people that I respected and considered and hold in high regard. I was basically, you know, sort of thrown out. And it was, that was somewhat painful. I guess I realized that I'd already faced that. And more importantly, my own family, my own father, I was sort of 
tossed to the side by him. And that's a, for someone who idolized his dad and you sort of left out on an island, it was a really difficult position I was in. And I realized that the one person I care about, I think everybody probably has mentors or people they respect and they really want their sort of validation. If I had lost that and I had survived that, then it wasn't going to be so bad. There's always a fear. I think one is the fear of failure in money. I think what a lot of people want to admit to is the public humiliation side of failing. And I think we all are risk averse and realize that if we're going to fail and fail in public, and I think that's where a lot of it, I mean, think about the own, think about what we cover at Freightways. I mean, we tell the stories of these companies that fell and sort of the inside stories of them, as well as sort of major media and social media. There's a lot of that sort of vitriol that's out there. And I think there's always a Freud element into all of this that people like seeing People that were once successful, not so successful. I mean, just like a Sam Bateman Friedman, where all of a sudden this guy is worth in like two years, you know, 30 something billion dollars. And we're all like, oh my God, how did he do it? And we're sort of amazed by it. And then wait, we find out it's all a fraud. We're like, oh, but look at that. I think that is the, that's what we have in our mind is what this would be like as we will become Theranos or Trevor Milton. These were all frauds. And I think in our mind, it's the same vitriol that's paid to them. Or take a company that's not a fraudulent who's sort of failed. The reality is we can't think of many of those sort of small-time founders that maybe you know went out and started a business and maybe the business had 10 employees. And you're asked to name those. You can't think of those companies or the founders after maybe a day or two. And I think that's the reason that fear is sort of over. We overemphasize the fear element in our minds that this is going to be humiliating if we fail. And frankly, a lot of the people, at least... You know, in my own journey and others, is a lot of people told you you couldn't, you wouldn't be successful, and we want to prove them wrong. And when it turns out that they're right, it's sort of humiliating in itself. And so I think a lot of the things that hold back founders that, like you say, have the, you know, $100,000 a lot of money to a lot of people, to anybody, it's a lot of money, but it's not like you're going to go to zero, right? You're not going bankrupt. Um, you're not taking on millions and millions of dollars. Well, and the root emotion at the end of all of that, you said humiliation. It's if you go deeper than that, it's shame. It is. You've let people down. And I don't think anyone wants to be humiliated and let people down. Hopefully, it's the case for most people. And it is the shame that you did something that didn't work. And then we question, you know, your identity or what, what is my value? And yet to hear you describe your family, you know, so directly and to know that you know you're not you don't have a perfect family nobody does and yet you have found your way through all of that in a way that you can still be true to what matters most to you and you can accept those failures and not let them define you getting over that shame or over that humiliation it makes a lot of sense what's left to be afraid of after that your family knows that you failed and your people even in your high school know like bring it up or people in your network and, you know, people that you once considered close friends that won't even invest in you because they had heard rumors that weren't necessarily true. But maybe some of that is true. Foundationally, that sort of breaks you. And I think you have to sort of recover from that. You have to sort of get over yourself. And that ego, I think, is when you go through a big failure, there was a great video of this I watched years ago. And I can't remember the name of the company, but it was a big dot-com company came on scene during the dot-com days. The founder, who I think went out and started Lids.com, you know, a big sort of successful brand. But he got there and he had an unsuccessful startup that had raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he was telling the story, when your company's bankrupt as a founder, your ego is bankrupt. And he tells the journey of what it was like for him 
to sort of realize that not only had he failed, had let people down and the humiliation that goes along with a big failure, but he is effectively broken. His ego is broken because the world that he believed that he lived in, this is the same thing for me, the world that I believed and everything that I believed to be true was not the way it actually was. And I had to sort of accept that the vision that I created for myself was not real. And a lot of the things that I thought I cared about were not that important. And I think once you reach that, I think the rock bottom example, and again, I want to say that I'm not suggesting that life was over for me or, you know, I was sort of, you know, you take people who hear these stories where they achieve rock bottom for substance abuse, whatever. Those stories are quite different than what I'm talking about. But in the mind of a founder and the journey of what it takes to be a founder, to sort of dismiss criticism, to sort of put aside the naysayers, sort of continue to drive every day and the failures that come along, just the micro failures that come along with starting a business, you have to get over yourself and you have to sort of start over. And I just reached a point where I just didn't care. None of the stuff that mattered to me. So what if my family thinks I'm a failure? I already am in their mind. So what if my friends think I'm a failure? already am in their minds. What? So who cares? Like I had nothing to lose in my mind and that was okay. And that was what gave me the energy and the inspiration to just get back up and start again. And I had an idea and that was where I wanted to go create a futures market in trucking. I set out to do that. Obviously, that's not what Freightways does today or is known for. We're known for being a media brand and a content brand and a data brand. And that journey was a little different along the way. I have been able to secondhand observe some of those projects and efforts that you undertook before they ever became public. I'm not sure if you even know some of this, but when you did start the futures market through one of my mentors and someone that has kind of guided my own development and career, a former CH exec, learned of of what you were building on the futures market. And I vividly remember, I don't know if this is six years ago or eight years ago or however long it was going out and studying the Baltic exchange and realizing, oh man, he's onto something. This could really, really work. And then to watch it over a period of time, not go the way that I think you intended. And then I also remember the BIDA, you know, the blockchain and trucking Alliance, and also thinking to myself, man, this is visionary. This is going to change our industry. Yet I haven't thought of either of those two things until (laughs) this morning. And they're just not a part of my memory of what you've done. Now it is, you know, the freight waves story. Two things about, I always tell founders when they're starting out is people will remember you for your successes, not your failures. Eventually, like you have the chance to sort of, and maybe even not, it's sort of like your last game that you play. You're sort of defined the success of a, say a quarterback is defined by the last game. We certainly have college coaches get fired all the time because they lose a big game that they should have won or against a big rival is everyone's forgotten the fact that you won national championships years ago. They remember that one game that you lost that you should have lost and all of a sudden it defines you. But it's also a recency bias problem. If you sort of go back in history, futures was the foundational idea. And you're you're talking to, you know, I know exactly Mark Walker, who was a great successful C.H. Robinson executive, was an early mentor and sort of guided the idea of freight futures for me. I did go to London and study the Baltic Exchange. I did go to Chicago and study the futures markets up there in New York and felt like this was an idea that was at least worthy of start starting. You know, futures markets, like any business, particularly one that's highly speculated by nature, is fraught with a lot of failures. But again, I just didn't care. Like, so what if I failed? The fact that I get the opportunity to do something for the next couple of years to figure something out, learn something out was growing to me. And that was exciting, really. 
goes back to beta, you know, I realized after about three months of sort of, I'd started this thing, sort of accidentally started it. And I realized after a couple of months of it, I'm not a great nonprofit sort of trade association standards association executive. And so effectively, I left and handed it off to the team. The problem was that there was some infrastructure that we had to manage throughout the process. And now BIT is on its own. And I think it's better because of it. I ended up kind of committing to that and then realizing, wait, I don't want to be a nonprofit trade association sort of founder. I'm not good at consensus, which is typically what you see with these sort of associations, that consensus building. Politicians, people who are much more political than I am, tend to do very well. Problem is I have strong opinions. And think of it from a media company perspective. A media company is sort of the antithesis of a political organization or a trade association. Because in many ways, it has to challenge the way people think about an industry or about a product. And it should have content that's both polarizing, positive, and, and also negative. And it didn't make sense for Great Waves to be involved in data long term. And it's had its own journey. It's had its own sort of hopium in the early stages of its sort of journey. And I think reality sort of caught up to it. There's a long-term opportunity for Beta. And I'm, you know, certainly happy that I was a part of the early foundational part of it, but I'm also not something I wanted to do very long-term. Now, one thing we did benefit from that is we realized that there was a lot of community. If you think about sort of Freightway's journey, we started out to do futures and we realized really quickly that in order to build a successful futures market is you need data and news that sort of drive the market. This is a market that's quite big, but it's very underserved through real-time information. And that was the reality when we started Freightways is there was no real-time media business that started writing business news. And a lot of the traditional media outlets, and they've gotten better at this. They sort of evolved their own models and sort of adapted to sort of a more modern news cycle. But a lot of the challenges that they would take a story and it may come out three days after the story broke, you're doing earnings reports two weeks after the quarterly conference call. For me, if it's an hour or two hours late, my editorial team is getting like, why aren't you covering this type of thing? And it's just a different cadence. And so we realized to build a futures market, you need information. So we set out and created a media business. And then you need data that sort of underlines these positions. It needs to be high frequency. It needs to be really fresh, constantly sort of refreshing. And so we built that with Sonar and it was all to serve the futures market. Now, granted, we probably have generated $100 in revenue in history of futures, but out of it, we built these two very successful businesses. And then you can sort of tie Bitta to sort of realizing that there was a desire. One of the things that was really interesting about Bitta that sort of underappreciated or under the radar is that it wasn't so much about blockchain. It was about the fact that you had technology innovators across the board, big and small, that were interested in sort of creating a conversation about what a standard should look like or how we should push towards standardization of technology services. What we found from that is it was a desire to get together. If you think about the trade associations and meetings and conferences that had existed, is they were all sort of foundational to markets. So you had the ATA and the TCA and the TIA, but they were, okay, we're going to bring the participants together in the market. And we're going to talk about things that impact these businesses. Technology was sort of uh, treated as a sort of afterthought or a sponsorship. Bin. Tech vendors were sort of there to reach out to the industry, but it wasn't the foundational reason for the industry to get together. We realized through Beta that we had the opportunity to create this ecosystem that sort of drove the conversation around technology innovation. And the industry itself would sort of adapt to these technology developments. And that was sort of where we started. Now we've seen that 
what's happening now is technology, because it's typically much larger than what it was when we started, is now there to serve the industry. And th- those things can both be true, is you can still have innovation happening through tech vendors themselves, sort of core part of the ecosystem. But you can also have industry participants that are also developing technology. And that's just sort of a new phenomenon to our industry. And so we benefited from that, sort of bringing the industry together. And Beta was the was a primary contributor to that. But it certainly was apparent to me pretty quickly that I just can't be an association executive. It's interesting because it's a, almost a reimagining of community in an industry that it's not, like you said, trade-specific or tech-specific, but it's a reorienting of a group of people around new ideas or new relationships. I've been studying community building for the last year because now I've have had the chance to engage with so many founders and heads of companies, and they all... I shouldn't say all, but most of them in, in one way, shape, or form said something to the effect of, man, this is lonely doing what I'm doing. And there isn't a community for founders. There are founder groups out there, don't get me wrong, but specifically in our industry, there hasn't been anything. And I bandied about the idea of should there be a nonprofit for something like that myself? I don't know. I mean, nonprofits are fraught with lots of problems. They are. They are. They start in altruism and they end in disappointment a lot of times. I think that's true. I think it's also, as an association, you're sort of dependent upon your group to sort of have some consensus. And there's a fear, and you see this with a lot of sort of trade associations in our own industry, is sort of take autonomous trucking as a good example of that. It's a very polarizing technology. Certain companies, you know, when we reach the world of autonomous trucking, it's going to be a have and have nots question for the early parts of that phase in. Certainly, it's going to negatively impact, potentially negatively impact driver or driver quality of life or not impact quality of life and actually job prospects for, for drivers. But it also promises to bring a lot of benefits. And it's going to be a have, have nots. The companies that can afford that technology that have fleets that have infrastructure are going to do well. And the ones that perhaps don't have that infrastructure are going to be negatively impacted by that. And so it's a very polarizing concept. And the problem that trade association has is it can't have a position. It can have conversations, but it certainly can't sort of push either or. And there's a lot of those things that associations, particularly sort of lobbyist groups that are sort of trying to drive policy decisions, have to be very careful on which side of the table they sort of lean into. The great thing about media organizations and about communities is if it's not a nonprofit, it's not sort of membership driven in the sense that it takes member buy-in, then a company can sort of have a position and it doesn't really matter whether or not the broader community sort of accepts it. As a founder, you have the ability to sort of make those higher risk decisions that can have big outcomes and big wins without having to get buy-in. The problem with an association is you need buy-in, whether it's a board buying into something or the general group buying into it. And, you know, Beta effectively had become very sort of, in some ways, unproductive. Or bureaucratic even. It is exactly it. One of the mistakes we made is we had 23 board members, which seems great because they're big names of companies, but all of a sudden big names of companies and 23 board members is a very unproductive board because everybody has an opinion and getting consensus on it's very difficult. So I would never want to set out and start a nonprofit ever again. It's not something I would ever do again. I learned really quickly. I'm not built for that. But I think there's an opportunity to build community. And I think, you know, media serves as a really powerful arm to that because you're sort of drawing around content and thought leadership 
And those things can be pretty powerful. So do you have ideas in your mind that you're able to share on on what you think the next iterations of what freight waves is might become over the next 10 years, 10 years plus? So we're on a really interesting path in the sense that we're a business of scale. So 200 employees, substantial revenues. I call it the cockroach stage of businesses is like the early phase, anything can knock you out, right? And usually it takes the founder to sort of declare we're done before the business can get out. We've seen that even with venture-backed companies. Company will raise a couple million dollars, sort of burn through it. Most of the people will leave, but maybe one founder hangs on. And they sort of start again. They raise some money. It doesn't work out. Founder stays in it. They're not dead until the founder declares it dead. The problem is when you reach a point of scale, you have actually obligations and debts. And you have infrastructure. And that takes capital. But we've reached at Freightways a point of what I call the cockroach stage, which is you can't be killed. Like You're only going to kill yourself. The business will only die. But it would take a very long time if it were going to die. And those are, for a founder, that's a really interesting stage because it means that there are no sort of near-death experiences that are going to kill you. It changes the motivation. In the early days of a business, everything could wipe you out. Small crises, insignificant things that we would all consider today if they were to happen at freight waves, just like small things. As a founder, you're like, oh my God, is this going to kill us? Like I can remember specific examples and not to go into them here, but like, where things that would be inconsequential in a normal business with scale feels like to a founder that this is going to put us under, like we're done because of this issue. Now, we obviously survived it, but there are a number of those things. And it's an exciting time because you sort of come out of those issues, you solve them and realize that they're not that bad or what your worst fears came out of it are not true. And that binds the team together, but it also realizes it and hopefully gives the founder a lot more character and thick skin to sort of realize when something big does come up in the future, if you scaled, it isn't going to kill you either. And that has been something that I would never take away. And I think that's been sort of the reality of our business is that that thick skin, like I've been through the worst storms. And if these things didn't kill us, then very little will. I think that creates an enormous sort of amount of character and sort of thick skin that a founder needs. But we're at the cockroach stage, which means nothing's going to kill us but ourselves. It means that we have scale. It means we have revenues. We have cash flow. We have all the things you want to have in a successful business, but it's also less rewarding, frankly. As the risk goes down, do you feel your attention shifting at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. You get depressed. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I reached this point two years ago where it was like, man, it just isn't fun anymore. And I realized it was because as a founder, I had fired myself from every job. I have done what you're supposed to do, which I've gone out and recruited executive management, sort of professional management, sort of eliminated myself from all the day-to-day activities and the meetings. And I fired myself from every functional role I had. And as someone who is involved in every aspect of it, you start to lose touch, particularly in a work-from-home environment. You lose touch with a lot of the day-to-day. You lose touch with a lot of the people. And you're not on the front lines of the business. And it's you have to sort of shift into a new role because it's just different. But it's less rewarding in some ways. But it's also, as the largest shareholder of the company, it's also incredibly financially rewarding because now the business is actually generating real money and revenue and scaling. And you know that this thing has real value. In the old days, it didn't matter. And you sort of have to get over that. But you know where we're headed in terms of sort of beyond the foundational days is it's a really interesting shift happening around the world and what this means for supply chains in the sense that you know we're past the post-Cold War period. You think about the Berlin Wall fell to sort of 
we'll call it COVID, was sort of this period of time where most of the world was sort of orientated towards free trade. Most of the world was oriented towards globalization. Donald Trump didn't change the trajectory of it, even though he wanted to. He tried to and attempted to. But the reality was the way the market economy worked is it was sort of so much momentum towards globalization that policy was sort of ignored or public policy was sort of ignored as sort of a not a real long-term impact. But COVID changed all that. We've seen what's happened in China with sort of geopolitical challenges there and how they, you know, is now an autocracy, even more so than it's ever been. You've seen what Russia has done with Ukraine. And we're in a really interesting time where supply chains are now reorientating themselves around resiliency. And we're seeing things like nearshoring and reshoring sort of come back. But the way that the supply chain is working today is not the way it worked five years ago. And so it's changing all of this and it's creating drama in the economy. And I got to be, be frank with you, that's the kind of drama that I like. I don't get in my own company. We don't have the near death crises at freight waves, but we get to tell the story from a supply chain perspective. And for me, that is, that is the kind of drama I live with is the global drama. It's frankly far more impactful to everyone's lives. And it's really interesting as a sort of a, a student of history. I've always loved history and loved sciences and the technology side of the world and economics. We're seeing this play out in near real time. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've sort of re-fallen in love with freight waves in the sense that it's no longer about the survival of the business and that's at risk to more. It's this changing world economy and changing orientation that we get to play the front lines of, of telling the story. So I think of what the story for freight waves is, it's not just about freight data, real-time data and, and news of our industry. It's an opportunity to really tell the story of the sort of next decade of what's happening beyond those sort of front lines of that. And it sort of reorientated my thinking on what this business is supposed to be. It used to be about bringing transparency to the freight market and the trucking market specifically to all of a sudden now we're bringing transparency to the global economy. There's something that you're saying that's a little bit different than a for-profit media company. Let me riff for a second and see if I'm picking up what you're laying down. I've been studying some history lately too, because the, the peak of globalization has been called. And you know, if we go back the last 70, 80 years post-World War II, when global trade really began to become more frictionless, the U.S. Navy is who patrolled the oceans and made ocean freight safe for pretty much everybody. We're starting to see piracy again on the high seas that we've not seen for decades. We've lived in a peacetime era, even before the Cold War, that has been unprecedented in human history. Typically, after a major conflict like World War II, the victors claim all the territory, and the Allied side didn't. We actually let the losing side keep pretty much everything. And then we entered a period of you know world peace that's really been, again, unprecedented. Now that all of those dynamics are starting to shift and countries are now having to be more concerned about their own energy security, food security, their populations are declining, all the risks become amplified. And for the first time, you're looking at borders around the world as being very malleable. Again, for the first time in a lot of our lifetimes. So with all of that as the backdrop, I'm curious if you feel any kind of moral imperative or journalistic obligation to be there and document that shift that's probably going to take 
10 to 30 years to really play itself out. And is there anything in that that explains maybe a deeper why for you beyond the you know shaping of an industry or beyond the financial rewards that is legacy related or trying to have an impact? Absolutely. I mean, I think you're, you've hit it spot on. All of what you've said is absolutely true. There's a reorientation of the global economy, the way societies work, the way America works. You know, we've gone from a very sort of during the Cold War days to the one, you know, superpower out there. We could argue whether Russia or Soviet Union was sort of as powerful as we sort of believed. We learned that it wasn't as powerful, but it still was a very powerful thing. Then in the post-Cold World, after the Berlin Wall, it sort of reorientated. And I remember as a kid, and I've just been a student of history my whole life, I've always been fascinated with these interesting characters that have sort of arisen in time, as well as sort of these interesting periods in time. And I think it's hard for us to accept that you wouldn't know it at the time. What we see in the sort of post-2020 age is an entirely different direction. To your point, it feels like a higher calling for our business. And the reason it's a higher calling is that the front lines in this new world order, and I hate that term because it sounds sort of like... It's overused, but this time it's actually real. And the way the world's oriented, we'll say, the front lines are the supply chain. And I think about what Freightways does with data and news and information is we have the way to sort of understand and interpret things that are happening on the ground by looking at the data that is what it's telling us, as well as sort of the context of what we're seeing, sort of living history from the front lines. And I think that's a pretty remarkable opportunity for the folks that work at FreightWaves, but also our industry. The supply chain industry is on the front lines. And for us, we get the opportunity to interpret the story and bring in thought leaders that aren't sort of actively involved in the supply chain, but have a component that is impacted. So look at our conference. We had Peter Zihan, who's a well-known author and thought leader on, on sort of demographic trends and sort of geopolitical trends. Or we had the you know China Beige Book CEO and founder that tracks sort of intra-China activity because we can't trust the Chinese data. You know, the official government stats are sort of useless. And so we need other sorts of information and data points. And we have an opportunity at Freightways to sort of bring in our own context of our own industry, the supply chain industry, the community that we are a part of and continue to help build and be a part of help building that um, with a much broader sort of set of context, whether it's economic context, humanitarian context, political context, or even, and hopefully not substantial, but even military context. And I think there's a role we have to play in sort of orchestrating that. And I think if you look at history, News businesses and media businesses have always been shaped the way that these topics and the way society responds to them. I think there's an opportunity for us to become, to document those stories, but also make sure that people who don't understand the supply chain industry, they don't track it, they don't live in it and die in it every day, understand how it works. So these are, you know, giving broader context. And what we've seen with our data and what we've seen with our media is that predominance of our revenue today and a predominance of our traffic and predominance of our customers are not supply chain organizations themselves. They're impacted by it. And we're seeing so much more growth outside of the core industry because what's happening is supply chains are now getting C-level, C-suite, executive sponsorship and concern and awareness that people are trying to interpret how these supply chain issues are impacting their businesses. 
and are impacted by these events that take place across the world. This is an entirely different opportunity that just hasn't existed in our lifetime and frankly ever. As you go back to sort of pre-World War II days, there was no real-time data, high-frequency data. Like we were dealing with government stats that were months, if not years old, was the only sort of source of information outside of sort of anecdotal information and, and maybe sort of rudimentary data collection. We're now living in a time where high-frequency data is available and supply chains are fragile and impacted by these events and will impact the events themselves. And we have an opportunity to play into that. And so I think it's a profound opportunity. I think a founder, I achieved what I set out to achieve when I started the company. I wanted to bring transparency to the freight market. And I believe we've done that. I think we've done that very successfully. That was a goal we set out when I started the business. I thought it was going to be futures. Obviously, that didn't work the way I wanted it to, but we got that through data. I achieved that goal. And I think as a founder, you have to keep increasing the set of goals. You have to have broader goals. And if you lose that, and that's what I felt two years ago is I had achieved what I set out to do and the business was successful and had met all the goals that I set out to do and far exceeded the reality of what I even thought we would accomplish. And now I'm reinvigorated because I realized that, that our mission is much broader than we had ever imagined it was, which was to bring clarity and transparency to what's happening around the world, but from the perspective of the front lines of supply chain. And that's exactly what the way we see our sort of mission. Well, if I can, then I always try to leave episodes offering founders, you know, some personal insight that I've picked up on, you know, about them you know, throughout our conversation, as well as some encouragement for the future and sometimes, you know, a challenge. So as we sit here now, FreightWaves has a unique place in not only being able to report on what's going on, but you're also able to influence what happens inside of the industry. And my hope is that you carry that well. Obviously, I'm a FreightWaves contributor, so I have benefited from being underneath the FreightWaves umbrella as an independent for this podcast. And I'm also a participant in the industry and media companies have a special obligation, I believe, that's not always easy to balance. And so whether it's, you know, gonzo journalism and becoming part of the story or pay to play and only highlighting those who are, you know, putting dollars in. It's part of why I like my unique place in the podcast library is we do the exact opposite. We're speaking out against not against, but we're amplifying voices that otherwise wouldn't be. So my pitch to you is there may come a day when you question that and say, are we still doing what we set out to do? Maybe it's five years from now, maybe it's next week, I have no idea. But FreightWaves has become a stalwart, and a pillar of the, the industry. And it can, as our rudder does, it can change the direction of the ship. I don't know you personally very well, so I, I can't really infer anything beyond our conversation. But I hope that you have people around you that can help maintain that because it's a privilege to occupy the seat that you do and to have the amount of influence that you do. I really hope for the sake of our industry and for all the participants in it that this lasts and stays objective and stays as the herald of the stories that are being told. When somebody looks back 50 years from now, they say, oh, yeah, let's go pull up the FreightWaves archives. They've talked all about what was going on in 2022, and they did it accurately. You know, it is always a opportunity, but also a challenge of maintaining the reason. So look at this year. It's very 
challenging to talk about an economic cycle that's really impacting a lot of businesses. And a lot of vitriol that comes out of that for other people that are trying to damage the credibility of the data, damage our voice, and competitors that obviously have sort of ulterior motives in trying to damage that credibility. We have not changed our messaging in terms of what we're seeing. And it has been challenging to the team to sort of be on the front lines and be attacked publicly because we're saying something that's unpopular. It's easy to sort of be a cheerleader when things are going well. It's even easy to be a cheerleader when things aren't going well. I think what we've tried to do is be very transparent in what we believe and taking a lot of heat over it. And I think, has it impacted you know, commercial opportunities? Absolutely. But we've never changed our mission, which is to bring transparency to it and the credibility. And I tell my team this consistently, as I've been reminded by one of my board members, is that you know, ultimately people, when all this is resolved, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of battle, it's sort of no one knows what's going to happen, right? Like there's a lot of opinions, but history is sort of the only bearer of truth. This is true of anything. And ultimately, history will decide whether what we said was going to happen did or will happen. And it will only be true after many, many months. And so one of the things that's challenging is we believe and have conviction around data and the analysis that we put out. And as long as we have that, we believe that we will maintain our role as a responsible steward of information and analysis in this industry. And the moment we pivot away from that, because we're selling out to an advertiser that doesn't like the content, we're selling out to a company that we do business with that doesn't like our content or our information, then we've lost that opportunity. And I can assure you that the calls that we've made, the information that we've put out there this past year have not only cost opportunities on our media side, but also on our data side, but also many of our largest customers were directly impacted. Their stock prices were directly impacted by some of the public analysis that we made, but we never pivoted off that. I can't say that has been true of everybody in the space is there's been a lot of folks that have been sort of trying to sort of parade and rally everybody to this sort of idea that things aren't so bad. I have to question why, if your own data suggests that it's bad, why are you talking about how things are good and try to find the light? And I realize that there's a reason for that. It's not what we do. Our goal is to be very transparent in what we see very consistent in the fact that that is our goal. And I think if we maintain that, then we have the opportunity to continue to be the source of information. Whether it is welcome information in news or unwelcome information in news, our goal is to always be consistent. We've taken a lot of heat this year for that because we've been obviously on the front end of seeing a lot of challenges in our industry. But it is something we'll continue to do. And you can look no further than my own family's company is Our reporter, John Kingston, has been very transparent about how challenging their business is today. The coverage is actually quite good, even though it's not the kind of coverage that, as a family member, you enjoy reading. But obviously, John, we, you know, has the responsibility. And I think that's consistent across the board. I appreciate the candor and the willingness to take a couple of, I wouldn't say pointed questions, but I I wanted to make sure I asked some of those questions because I see the, the rumblings that are out there and... I didn't want to miss my own opportunity to ask the question of you. We should be able to, you know, Nate, I don't think it's an unfair question. It's something that people should understand. It's not to drive clicks and it's not to drive revenue. I can tell you, when you talk about a slowdown in the economy, people are not taking out advertising dollars for that. It is impacting our business as it is every business. We don't take a lot of pride in the fact that we see a slow economy 
Think about it. Advertising dollars are the first thing to go. It's true in consumer. It's true in supply chain. And every company that's spending advertising dollars, whether it's Freightways or others, should be looking at budgets next year. It's going to be a challenge environment. The last thing you want to do is spend a lot of money on advertising going into a slowdown in the economy. We have to have an honest conversation about that. Companies should be on the defensive. Our goal is to be provide transparent information. And if it's unwelcome, then it's not because we have an agenda to sort of change the way things are operating. We have an agenda to inform and to be very direct. And if it's unpopular and unwelcome, I get it because no one likes talking about bad news. But I assure you, our goal is to just be incredibly transparent, incredibly visible in what we're saying and direct. And ultimately, history will decide whether we were right, we got the calls correct, or whether we got them wrong. And I would suggest we will listen to this hopefully six months from now or a year from now, this being November 2022. And there'll be a lot more clarity on whether those cautionary calls that we've made throughout 2022 have proven to be correct or incorrect. And I think the opportunity of the media company is you get to go on record. Everyone knows what you've said because it's republished everywhere, not just on our own sites. And there's an opportunity to be held accountable for incorrect. That's something we understand and we appreciate. And we know that's a responsibility. And if we lose that, if we lose the level, if we're no longer accountable to our own content, then we believe that we have done an enormous disservice. And I can tell you, the competing debate knows that freight waves and you know the internal workings is, I fought vehemently to protect that. There have been times where we've had commercial relationships where there's been pressure from our sales team to tone down the rhetoric or not cover a story. And we have consistently adhered to a policy that you know, the media team should have the right to tell these stories in the way that they need to tell them. That is something we believe sort of foundational. And I credit Michael Bloomberg. He said it in his book is like, even if it's your largest customer, represents 25% of your revenue, there's a great anecdote in that, then you tell the story, even if it's not popular, you know, because that's your responsibility you have. Thank you for going deep on that. I, I know there are plenty of folks that are going to hopefully listen to this and hear a slightly different side than maybe what they've heard. Thanks for being willing to go there on a show on your, on your own platform. You mentioned November of 22. We're approaching Thanksgiving. And as we wrap up here, I have my own list of gratitude that I you know, want to make sure that I call out. And while I do that, Craig, I'd also ask you to think about your own journey and family and friends and the support that you've gotten and maybe give a few shout outs as soon as I wrap through my list. From memory, I'm, I don't have a list prepared, but this has been an incredibly rewarding and fulfilling and scary journey this last 12 months. Uh, what you see on a podcast is 20 minutes or 30 minutes of recording. It is far more time than that that goes into it. And so I first have to say thank you to my own family who has put up with me being downstairs in the basement at all hours of the day and night, editing and scheduling and promoting all the things that it takes to have a show be a success and not just go a giant thud when you put it out into the world. I also want to thank every single founder, especially the early ones who took a risk on being on a show that had no audience and was unproven. And I wasn't proven to them. And a big thank you to every single one. Your stories and your vulnerability are what this podcast has been about. It happens to be about the logistics industry. 
but it's human interests. It's people stories. It's family. It's what motivates people, what your values are. And those are intensely personal things. And so I'm honored that you chose to share all of those things with me and with our audience. Also, a big shout out to Fraser Goodgame of the Freight Waves crew, who's been the man behind the scenes taking my episodes and doing the final prep on them and getting them out into the Apple world and the Spotify world and the Freightcast page and putting it out there. So Fraser, I just owe you a debt of gratitude. You have been one of the most supportive and positive people I could have ever hoped to work with. So thank you. And then uh, last, Craig, I have to say thank you to you that you had this idea and through direct messages on Twitter said, yeah, I'll give you a shot at this and then trusted me to take it where it went with honestly minimal involvement. It was great to know that I could take this wherever I felt it needed to go and that you would let me. And so the trust that you put in me to do this is not something I will soon forget. This has opened up doors for me in networking and establishing a new platform, I think, for for founders. So I am deeply appreciative to you, Craig, and to everybody who has listened to even five minutes of an episode or every single episode. Thank you, mom, for listening. (laughs) I always know I've got one listener out there no matter what. So as we wrap, I am very, very thankful for everybody who's made and been a part of this journey. Craig, how about you? Who and what are you thankful for? I don't want to sound like a Emmy, like going through the big list. I want to thank the Academy. Yeah, right. The people that have been most impactful in my life, and I would say this is the best advice I'd give any. I have young children, I have one that's now 16. And I've told him, because I think this is the best quote, it's the Sheryl Sandberg quote, which is, you know, the best career decision you can make in your life is who you marry. And I think most of my success is really sort of driven by the one person that's always in my corner, has always been in my corner, who's helped keep things going is my wife, who I'm very fortunate to have met and have married because it's so much of my own success is driven by her ability to not only keep things going with a family. I have five kids, so it's a big family. Even the ones that she didn't birth are still her kids and she treats them as such but also the business. And I think uh, she's been a very impactful person in my life. And I think that's an important piece of advice I would give my own kids is, you know, you're going to end up with somebody at some point in your life. And hopefully that person will help encourage you along the way. And I think founders should do that as well, is that, you know, as you go on that journey, the person that is your partner in your life, not just your business partner, but also your personal partner. It's really important that you have someone that no matter how bad things get and how dicey they get or challenging they get, they're always in your corner. And I'd have to certainly give a shout out. Obviously, the people who sort of joined Freightways in the early phases as well uh, today are obviously instrumental in that. The entire team that we've built, whether it's our data side or our media side, you know, have done an astounding job. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to do that. But I would just leave that one advice about whom you marry or who you settle with is the most important decision you can make. Craig, thank you so much. Those are very profound words. Folks, thank you for listening to this episode. We will catch you somewhere, some other time on potentially another podcast or some other adventure that we'll spin up at some point in the future that we haven't even dreamt of yet. Thank you for being a part of this community and being a part of this journey. To all the founders and future founders that are out there, know that we will always be rooting for you. Thanks for listening to another founder share their story on the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. If you'd like to become part of the story yourself, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.